Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dio, for managing WPV. VMFM there on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. We couldn't do this without you. You can always reach me, Nave, at jamesnave.com if you would like to connect. I would love to hear from you. And wanted to remind you, we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing and, and excite your imagination a bit, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to start. So today I have a new friend on. Her name is Holly McCann. And Holly is an executive leader. She works with groups all over the world. She has a, a very deep background in corporate world as well as in the spiritual world. And I met Holly at a reading that Maya Toll, an author in Asheville, was offering at Malaprop's bookstore. And we connected and I thought, my goodness, how about an interview? So Holly, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you, Nave. So happy to be here and happy to have you as a new friend in town. Well, I'm glad to glad to connect with you as well. So leadership, that's mm -hmm. your focus. Your business is Grail Leadership. That's your business's name. And you work with teams of people and you also have traveled a lot and you've done a lot of work in the world of business. So I would like for you to start by focusing us on the essence, the center of gravity around leadership as you understand it, because you have a different take than the standard lineup, salute, and march off to the sunset to see what happens kind of a leadership. I love how you teed this up, referring to the center of gravity, because that is exactly what I believe true leadership is all about. It's how you're centered in your own power from the center and your connection to everything that is. And that, what I refer to as a fractal, meaning that it applies at every single scale, the nucleus of every cell, to the heart of every body, to the leader that, and the visionary and the vision that's at the center of every organization, shared vision that's at the center of a collective organization. So really, how do we continue to come back to center? And there's so many ways that I could take that, but I'll just briefly say, I believe that the leadership journey is a heroes and heroines journey of Campbell, Joseph Campbell, mythology, Maureen Murdoch that brought through the heroines journey. And it's like a pendulum swinging between these polarities, you know, internal, externally focused, masculine, feminine, and yin, yang. We swing in these pendulums that are so far off of our center. And for most of our civilization, the, the definition that we understand of leadership is a very masculine dominant definition. And I am not here to bash the masculine. I love the masculine. It just needs to be in union with the feminine. And so far we've had the feminine sort of deep underground and suppressed. So a lot of what's happening in our world is the feminines rising back up and, and wanting to come into union with the masculine. So that's where you find your center. You know, when we're swinging in the pendulum, which we do as we're evolving and growing and understanding our world, ourselves, our communities, we do swing wide, but 
the more we can sort of swing wide and bring those back in and throw them into the cauldron of alchemy and integrate them all into harmony, then we're not at war within ourselves. Those polarities that are essential polarities of creation are dancing together in their own, what I call sovereign union. Each one is individually whole and amazing. And when they're in union together in harmony and synergy, that's where the, the real juice and thriving of life comes through. You mentioned true leadership. I hear that term a lot, true mm -hmm. leadership. The true leader does this, the true leader does that, which implies the opposite, the false leadership. Mm -hmm. So you have the true leader and the false leader. Both leaders end up with followings. I think I know what a false leader might be. Sometimes I see people leading in ways that I think wouldn't be something I would want to join. It has a false tone to it, and yet it sounds true to many people who follow that person. So help us understand the contrast between those two ideas. Yeah, great question. And I think it's so subtle out there because we've been so conditioned to have one definition of leadership. And I was a, what I will call a false leader for many, many years, you know, decades and careers that I spent achieving heights of success in these different careers by being that kind of a leader. When I say false, it's not like I was intentionally hoodwinking anyone or anything like that. I just was not being true to myself. And I didn't even know that I wasn't doing that. What I mean by that is the falsity is that where are you orienting? If you're orienting to an external definition of what the world wants you to be, what you think you need to be, how you think you need to be moving according to these parameters of what society tells you a good leader does or needs to do, you know, grow the company, raise a lot of profits, return profitability to the, the investors, right? There's a whole track around that that's very well grooved. People understand that. People know that. And a lot of people follow that because those people are externalizing their own power, looking outside of themselves for someone to lead them, to tell them it's going to be okay, to tell them they've got it figured out. And I was that leader. It's going to be okay, everyone. I'm here. I'm in charge. I'll take care of everything. I'll take on more and more responsibility. I'll take the risk of making the tough calls. And people go, okay, good. Holly's got it. Right. But in doing that, I wasn't coming from here in my own center. I was coming from I need to be that in order to fill in the blank, get wealth, success, accolades, love, acceptance, value, worth, a bigger paycheck, you know, safety and security that comes with all those things. But when you can find that that actually the true source of all of those things, wealth, joy, fulfillment, those are coming from inside, from your own orientation to where you in the true authentic self is leading you, not where society tells you you need to in order to fit in. It's really interesting because we celebrate uniquity and yet we constantly are telling people to get back in your lane, fit in. You threaten me if you're outside, you know? So it's, we just live in such a world of paradox. And, and yet conformity is close to containment. Yes. And when yeah. one contains oneself, within self, center of gravity, conform, if you will, to your own sense of truth. Mm. Isn't that another kind of conformity, another kind of containment that mm. has power? So the critique 
maybe isn't about conformity as much mm -hmm. as it is the choices one makes around what one conforms to. I use the word integrity, and I don't mean I'm going around lying or cheating people. It means, am I integrated? Is what I'm saying and, and acting and what the words I'm doing and the body language and the actions I'm taking match what the inner conversation is, what my inner beliefs are? I argued a case in front of the California Supreme Court. I had lots of really intimidating situations. And inside, I would just be like jello. But outside, I would be like, never let them see you sweat. I got this calm, cool, and collected. That's not an integrity because inside, I was quaking in my boots, right? So if I'd been a little bit more transparent, like, wow, I'm really nervous to be up in front of all of you right now, you know, you can start to break down that wall that we put up, that armor, because we're all afraid of being truly seen. If they really knew what I was thinking inside, they would lose all confidence in me. They would not pay attention to me. They would not give me credibility. So I've got to put up a, a shield and an armor that makes it seem like I've got it all together. But inside, we're all walking around doing the same thing and then wondering, why don't I trust this person? I don't know. They're saying the things that seem to like really resonate with me, but for some reason, something in me is telling me to move away. It's because of that lack of integrity. And this is a hypothesis you can check. Yeah, absolutely. You, and also, you're going before the Supreme Court, the California Supreme Court, big deal. And you're all buttoned up and you don't show anything. You get one result. You go before the same Supreme Court and you're in your integrity. You show them something else and you get another result. Can you tell us about how that shift started to work for you? When did you realize, okay, if I shift over to this other way of approaching the Supreme Court, maybe we use that as a more extended metaphor, when did you notice the results improving mm. for you? So I'll answer that in two ways. One is the container and the environment is super important because context, right? So if I had just been like, you know what, I'm just going to let it all loose. I'm just going to show them who I am, walk into the California Supreme Court. And if I go in there and say, you know, your honors, I'm so nervous today. I'm really afraid I'm going to mess up. I'm not even sure if my argument is sound. You know, all the dot thoughts and voices that are in my head, they would be like, please leave our court, right? So that whole system is all based on the same kind of patterns of behavior and agreement fields. Okay, we're going to go with the ones that convince us the most, that make us feel they know what they're talking about. They've got this thing figured out, right? So you kind of can't walk into the California Supreme Court and be super vulnerable. Yet, that's where we're all craving connection, authenticity. Think about the things that you find when you connect most deeply with individuals. It's when you see their heart. It's when you see who they are in, in their humanity, in their realness. But we've set up these systems and these structures where we don't allow each other to be real, but we're saying, I'm craving to connect with you. I'm craving to feel the real you. But then as soon as you show me the real you, I lose confidence. I get scared. I sort of ostracize you because I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> so I feel like many brave souls are pioneering this new territory of let me just start to be more authentic, then create these systems and these structures that not only allow for that, but encourage it and celebrate it and say thriving happens in biodiversity. We don't need conformity around the table. We need a whole group of diverse perspectives to tap into the wisdom of the collective that's far better than any one of us could bring through. But in doing that, 
we need to be comfortable with someone who doesn't quite see the world exactly like we do, because that's not the point. We want differing perspectives, but we are threatened by them right now for the most part. I'll go back to the second part of that answer, which is how how did I come to this? And really it was the choiceless choice. I mean, I got to be close to 50 years old and my pressure cooker was just ready to blow because I had lived carrying around this armor and these masks to where that genius that lives inside of me, that really feminine power that was living deeply buried within me was not willing to be shunned and exiled in the castle anymore. She was like, I came here to be, you know, not to like shrink away. So all this pressure was coming in at the same time that this authentic me was ready to burst out. So it just got to this point of, I couldn't do anything other than that. Life brings you, especially when you're stubborn, especially when you're sort of in that track of, I will figure it out. I've figured it out before. I know there's a way. If I just try harder, work smarter, you know, it takes a two by four sometimes to hit you upside the head to where you really gets your attention. And you're like, oh, this is one or a series of ones that I can't resource my way out of, figure my way out of, work harder my way out of. And that's where sort of the dark night of the soul of many aspects of my life, the walls started just collapsing in because it was a house of cards built on this unstable foundation. It wasn't the true me. So it was held up until I couldn't hold up that house of cards anymore. And it all Humpty Dumpty style came crashing down. Greatest thing that ever happened to me and the most challenging. So when it came crashing down, what were some of the steps you took to build it back up with vulnerability being more of a currency and allowing vulnerability to inform understated confidence? Mm. Yeah, it was quite a journey, I'll say. I was so steeped. I was the firstborn of four girls. I really raised my sisters and my mom in a single parent household. Like from birth, basically, I was in that I'm a leader role. So it was very conditioning and ingrained. I didn't even know I had a real feminine side in me. I would push away from the feminine cocktail parties. I would hang out with the men talking about business and entrepreneurship and and be like, I don't want to listen to the latest dish soap that this woman found. I had this disdain for the feminine as being weak. When I got flattened, I had no choice but to just surrender finally. I kept trying and kept hitting a brick wall and things like my mom was dying of ovarian cancer. I was powerless, even though I tried. I couldn't heal her from that. Things like that, that were happening, that were way beyond what I had the power to control and try to fix. So in that space of surrender and complete unknown of, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what makes sense to me. I don't know what I know. My whole world had been a world that was carefully controlled around what I knew. And then this just blasted open. And in that space, I just had to finally grieve, feel powerless, feel like I had no clue about anything, watch all the things fall because I I literally couldn't pick myself up off the floor to fix them. Luckily for me, I had amazing women friends and they could hold a space. They would be there for me to just see me in my vulnerability, which was always terrifying to me. I didn't want anybody to ever see me fall apart. So for the first time, I could be witnessed in this weak, 
vulnerable state and they loved me anyway. This is part of your expansion. This is part of your true you coming out. And that was a revelation. You mean I can be this messy and you still love me? You still come back and want to have a conversation with me? Like, you know, so that was that was the start of the revelation. And then the more I let myself do that, the more I came to appreciate myself, hold compassion for myself, the more it just snowballed into then outside those tight relationships, I could be more vulnerable. I could openly say, I really appreciate myself. You know, where before it would be like, I can't say that, you know? <laughs> so, so many things started to happen and, and it's a long journey of many, many, many layers, but Really, I th- I'd say the biggest blast of freedom is in that explosion where, oh my gosh, I don't have to hold this anymore and I can't. If someone had said, no, 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 Holly, you can fix this. You can hold it up. Just keep trying. It would have prolonged it. I would have still had that like, I'm failing at this. I need to get better at it, which is the whole voice in my head. But this just got to a point where I cannot do this and and that's okay. Life goes on. I'm still alive. I'm still loved. I'm still accepted. Was your flattening something that happened quickly or was it a slow, gradual incline that suddenly was flat? And how long did that last before the flattening became upright again? Yeah. So it happened in waves. Um, I was perpetually on that climb the corporate ladder of success. There's a bigger mountain. I'm going to climb it. I'll get to the top of that one, but there's another bigger one. I haven't quite reached it yet because there's still another pinnacle. So I would achieve all these successes, but still have this voice saying, you're not doing enough. You could be doing this better. There's more perfection to be attained. There's more finances, control, accolades, whatever. Keep going, keep climbing. After 12 years of being a lawyer and corporate executive in the Silicon Valley, I was getting burned out. My kids were young. I wasn't spending quality time with them like I wanted to. And so we moved to North Carolina for a better quality of life. We moved to Chapel Hill and beautiful, amazing place to raise young children. And I instantly jumped into like, I'm going to start my own business thinking that, well, I'll have my own staff. I don't have to work all these hours. I'll have employees to run the store and the phrase of wherever you go, there you are is so accurate because I just took the same me that was running myself ragged in corporate, brought that into the small business arena and just compounded it. So 12 years later, what's wrong with me that I just can't be happy with what I have with all the successes I've created? There's not enough. So then I switched to coaching, coaching other small business owners, but then started feeling that old, like, it's just not enough. I should be making a bigger impact in the world. Like this phrase of this feeling of it's not enough kept coming through. And recently I've looked back and I was, oh, really what my internal dialogue, the more truthful would have been, I'm not enough. So when you can really be like, oh, there's a hole in me that I'm trying to fill through this mania of work and success. So that happened in all these waves where I make these changes thinking, oh, if I just change careers, if I just change locations, then it'll be better. Then I'll be able to really enjoy my success. But I just kept doing the same thing over and over. So once the Humpty Dumpty came crashing down, it was a couple of months period of just completely spinning, like had no idea, crying all the time. What is wrong with me? Who is this person that can't keep it together? You know, I had no idea who I had become, who I was. And then it slowly started to even out a bit, but it was another two years, I'll say, 
of just being in this in-between space of just questioning everything, allowing myself to not know anything. I moved to Boulder in 2016 and instantly started working on all these regenerative initiatives. I had read this amazing book by Frederick Leloux called Reinventing Organizations. So at the time, I really was getting passionate about, I want to make an impact in the world. I want to make the world a better place for me having been here. And I know it has something to do with the way we lead and the way our businesses are structured. And I always had these ideas of working, and I always was working cross-stakeholder, bringing you know multi-stakeholders and perspectives to a table around a shared vision or purpose. And here's this book that's laying out all these organizations that are actually modeling the same way of business. And I was like, yes, this is what I want to be doing in the world. And so I fell into that quickly in Boulder and had a whole series of amazing organizations that are doing incredible work in the world that then took me all around the world. I was living very nomadically for about seven years. My home base was Boulder, but most of the time I was living with startup teams or working closely with them all around the world. And what I found time and time again was one, wherever you go, there you are. I had to keep seeing like, oh, I've been here before. This is an old pattern I recognize. So I was still bringing that workaholic, even though it was a whole social impact, heal the world kind of initiative. And the leadership teams would break down because they were doing the same thing. They were bringing their old trauma patterns, survival mechanisms to the table. So I really got the sense of, yes, we need to change what we're doing and the focus of our businesses to be more beneficial for the world. We need to change the way we come together and work in these whole systems, viewing them as living ecosystems. And we need to transform ourselves into these whole holistic living systems that are ourselves are a whole ecosystem of the microbiome, the virome, like everything in our world is an ecosystem. So bringing all of those back to center and integration is huge. You have had a lot of success in your life, traditional success for sure, as we can tell with the stories you were offering us as well as now you're working in other businesses. And I hear by the tone of your voice, you're very satisfied and it's successful within the context of of your terms. A lot of people out there, and I run across a lot of folks, I do a bit of coaching myself, and they just would like to have one score, one home run. You know, if I could just only get that one thing so I could be proud of one fully realized, wow, I saw the sunrise. They often fall short of that. So they don't have even that first experience of, wow, I did something that was really satisfying, that took my breath away. And yet they keep trying and they keep working because there's some still small voice inside that says, you have to keep moving here. There's something there for you. Maybe they feel like they're not led properly, or they don't understand leadership, or they don't understand how to find a mentor. And there are thousands and thousands of people like that. How do you help people reflect on that? Because you have all of this success and you came down, flattened, came back up again, and you've had that experience of the of the wave, like mm-hmm. in the sound wave, up and down, up and down, the ocean comes in and out. But for somebody that hasn't done that, or still trying, 
how do they find their way into something mm-hmm. that can feel good for themselves? Yeah, great question, Nave. So the first thing that I often do is say, tell me what success looks like to you. And usually they stop, blank stare, confusion, deer in headlights. What do you mean? It means making a lot of money or, or getting a lot of accolades or having a huge reputation in my career, making the CEO, whatever that is, that is generally a fed to them definition of like, here's what success means. Here's what everyone needs to find success as. But when I start to say, what if you could have an ideal day in your ideal life, what would that look like? And that happened with me. One of my friends early on in my breakdown was asking me this. And I said, oh my gosh, I would be eating lots of organic food. I would be just shopping from the farmer's market. And at the time I I wasn't, I was working so much. My ex-husband at the time was doing a lot of the cooking and grocery shopping, and he didn't have as much of a value on organic food. So I was craving just whole organic food, something as simple as that. And now my whole life is, you know, going to the farmer's market and working with farmers and how do we increase food sovereignty and all that sort of thing. But that was one of the things that came through. It wasn't, I'm going to be the CEO of a multi-million dollar multinational corporation. It was, I just want to eat organic food. <laughs> I want to play with my children and have joy in my heart. How are you defining success? What is that success that you're chasing? Often not even really connecting to like, yeah, that is success for me. So in many ways you see, wow, i actually 90% there already. <laughs> you know, maybe there's just a few tweaks to make. And also that thing, that inner voice that you said, there can be the harsh inner critic, especially for the high achievers. Years ago, I was doing a blog post about genius. And I looked up the word because I love the etymology of words. And there was this one definition that caught my eye that said, genius, the attendant spirit present from birth. I was like, whoa. (laughs) So it's not the Mozarts, the Botticellis, Einsteins. Every single person has this attendant spirit present from birth. That's their genius that lives inside them like a genie in a bottle, just waiting to have that lamp, you know, rubbed so that the genie could come out and express itself. So tapping into like, what is your unique genius, your genie that's in there? trapped in a bottle that can't wait to get out. And that's a tough one because every genius is unique. So you try to bounce it off of an external reflection of what success looks like. And you're instantly, oh, I couldn't do that. People would laugh at me or I would never make money at that. Like it's all the reasons why you couldn't do the things that brings you alive. And that's actually where the thriving happens. And then we have all of the symbols of conformity in our culture. For example, the subdivision would be a symbol of conformity. I was in Denver, Boulder last week recording an audio book and was in Boulder and drove Highway 36 to Denver every day to work with a fellow that was recording the books. And along the way, you see all of these track houses. Now, here we are in the symbol of American conformity. And yet, as I drove by, first of all, being a bit judgmental of the track houses, then I realized, well, wait a minute. I'll bet there are a lot of people living in those track houses, just like there are artists living in New York in the conforming apartments that are called Stuyvesant. They all look exactly the same or anywhere in in New York City. I thought, well, I wonder if I'm off base here. Just because this is an external symbol of conformity 
it may mean nothing because mm-hmm. the people living there, some are feeling pressed and put in a box and they're conforming and they're not living their greatest lives. And others might be happy as little lambs out in the pasture. The idea of conformity and the symbols we use to express it sometimes I think are a tad judgmental. And I wonder how we can reflect on that. So people who are very happy in what appears to be symbolic conformity, but yet feel Mm -hmm. so free, they may be more free than the ones conforming to the bohemian offbeats, if you will. For me, it's that inner landscape. Like how at peace are you with your own desires, thoughts, judgments? Are you comparing yourself to keeping up with the Joneses? I've got to have a bigger or more unique house, or I don't want to look like everyone else because I want to have my own style, my own uniqueness. Like you said, the people that might be just perfectly happy as a mouse, they've got their own little warren in there that they've made their own, their style of furniture, their pink colors, their favorite dishes, their favorite artwork that could be anything from a Renoir to their child's finger painting on the refrigerator. They've made it their own, even if the outside looks very conventional conforming. So it really is, what's your orientation to your surroundings, which often is a reflection of what your orientation is to your inner landscape. We have these outpicturing. A lot of times we see a judgment like, oh, the cookie cutter, tract housing. Often that goes with it's low income because those are cheap to build. Let's make them all the same. You know, the factory conveyor belt production, you know, keep it all the same so you can keep it cheap. Some of those people will be like, no, this is the choice I would make. I feel safe in this place where, you know, I know how it all works. The people that are in here are like me or it may give them comfort. So you're right. We can't just based on our own projections, judge someone else's choices. And I'm thinking of those houses on Highway 36 between Boulder and Denver. Yes, I know them well. You know, each one is at least $2 million just to get in. So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. The idea of leadership and the idea of one leading oneself, this idea of sovereignty, I spoke with your friend Jessica Falcon, who's a guest on the show. She talked a lot about sovereignty. I loved her take on sovereignty. I would like for you to reflect a bit on your take. You may share a fair amount of the same thinking Jessica has, but I would be curious to see the nuanced differences, if there are any. Yeah, Jessica is a new friend, and we have so much resonance, so much that we see alike, especially at the core. And um, I have a slightly different use of the word sovereignty, I, in Grail Leadership, which is all about wholeness and that harmony of the polarities, I talk about sovereign unity, which seems like a paradox, right? Which is where all the juiciness of life lives in the the union of the paradox. Um, So sovereignty, like, yes, can I be my own unique genius self, my own unique expression, and not try to conform to some outside definition? And yet, can I be in union with all that is, with myself, with another person, with a community, with nature, with the world, with the source of life force energy on the planet, whatever that means for you, can I be realize that I am not separate from that? Nature shows us all the time that we are a web of interconnected ecosystems within ecosystems within ecosystems. There is no true separation other than in our minds and our beliefs. So 
when we can be both, when we're like, I am free to be my unique, crazy ass self and realize that I am not separate from you. I'm not separate from this chair. I'm not separate from the trees outside. I'm a part of nature, not it's me and nature. It's I am a critical part of nature. You know, that's the sort of thing. And I I have a whole course that I did on the hero's journey and the heroine's journey. And a lot of times it's shown as a circle um, from Joseph Campbell or Maureen Murdoch that came up with her own version of the heroine's journey. And I sort of wove them together in an interesting way. And what I saw in my inner vision was a sine wave that sort of there's this horizon line and the hero phase or the sovereignty phase is the above line of like the hero goes out to you know leave the ordinary comfort zone of the ordinary home and go out to the special world and prove his valiance prove to himself and to others i have power i have strength i have might i'm seen as this brave knight i've slayed all these dragons i've rescued all these damsels in distress but at the tip be top of that is where you're so far from the feminine that you're in an imbalanced masculine. Like I'm going to dominate everything around me. I'm going to control everything around me, overpower it. I'm better than anything else. You know, I have more might and power, but am I really happy? Is this all there is from slaying all those dragons? So that's when you're starting to slide toward that horizon line where you hit the dark night of the soul crossover point where you tumble down into the underworld. And that's the world of the feminine. That's the heroine phase of letting go of who you thought you were, everything you thought you knew, surrendering into the not knowing, into the unknown that is terrifying for us. (laughs) But you're in the deep, in the dark. And in that space, at some point, there's a spark and a light that you start to find. And that's your true authentic self, your true connection to nature the true leadership in you, the true beauty, the true love, all of those things that you find when you let go of all the armor that you built up in that hero phase. And you need to have built up armor in the hero phase to carry you through that underworld journey. Because if I hadn't built up a certain degree of confidence and wherewithal, I may have just gotten flattened and stayed flattened thinking I'm powerless to do anything about this. There was something in me that had a confidence that was instilled in me from that hero phase that I was able to be like, okay, I don't know what's happening, but I trust that at some point I'll figure it out. (laughs) I trust at some point this is all going to make sense because I look back over my journey and even though I was in the darkest times, it always worked out. So I could come back to that belief system, that confidence in my own resourcefulness and sense of connection and, and rightness in the world. So then you kind of come out of that. And when you're coming back to that horizon line and you bring that masculine phase and that feminine phase into wholeness, you integrate all the things that you pushed aside when the pendulum was swinging and bring them back in, that is where true thriving in your center, in that life force energy of vitality and creativity and joy and not only just joy, but you're able to be with the pain and the sorrow and the heartbreak of the world as well. Because you've gone there. You haven't been like, I don't want to go anywhere near that. You dove straight down into the belly of the beast. Right? So, And the dark night of the soul implies the day and the night is there. Yes. The joy, the pain, and the contrast between the two. Interwoven in your narrative just now you use the word belief a lot 
I believe this, I believe that. Belief is something that we all have a great deal of commitment to. I believe this, I believe that. And many of our beliefs are well-established, well-entrenched. I would like for you to reflect a bit on how beliefs change (laughs) and do they change? And do we have a set of beliefs built into us from the moment of birth, the attendant spirit, you arrive with the attendant spirit and you start to develop a set of core beliefs. Yeah. I'd like for you to reflect on the changing of beliefs and do they change? Belief is not necessarily tied to facts or reality, is it? I can speak for days on this. I will try to encapsulate it. I love this topic. So most of my life, I was on a quest for knowledge. If I just figure out how the world works and how to succeed and how to win the game, I'll be safe. I'll be okay. Uh, And that was what I was constantly doing. So in that world, the belief was there is a right way and a wrong way to do things. There's a way to get to success. There's a way to get to financial freeness, all that sort of thing. You're very much in this narrow corridor of this belief set because this is what's fed to you and you don't veer off of that because you know then you'll be doing it wrong and you'll lose your way, right? Well, life has shown me time and time and time again as if I start to be like, well, what if that's not true? And you question those beliefs and the beliefs that underlie those beliefs and why do I believe that? Oh, because of this. Well, why do I believe that? Oh, because of this. You can start to see, I I really have come to a knowing, and I hold that loosely, our lives are created from the stories we're telling ourselves. And that's all a belief is. What's the story I'm saying yes to? You know, what's the story that I came in with through my birth and who my parents were and all the ancestral trauma that's in my DNA, environment that I grew up in, the way that I was raised and parented, all those things form these layers of belief, right? And they get reinforced. If you're holding that belief, you're going to create a reality that reinforces that belief. So you're like, see, I knew it. This is how it works, (laughs) right? But what if it doesn't? What if I was just thinking and acting that way? And it's only because I was thinking and acting that way that it works that way, not the reverse. And that's what so much of science and there is a right way and a wrong way. There's fact and there's falsity. That is so not our world that we live in. We live in a very malleable universe based on lots of different possibilities and potentialities that you start to form into matter as you start to say yes to a particular storyline and add more, you know, depth and characters to it and all that sort of thing. So I have loved from a very rigid mind approach to life that kept me very locked into what I could do and couldn't do to like blowing that wide open and having these incredible conversations with these people that are like, yeah, did you think, you know, did you hear the world might be flat? And instead of being like, oh, you're an idiot, that is wrong. I'd be like, let me see what you have to say about that. One of the most compelling moments was when someone said, think about what is in every single elementary school classroom when you were growing up, a globe. It's reinforcing this, nope, the world's round, the world's round. What if it's not? You know. So I don't know what I believe, but what I do now hold is truth is malleable. I might be like, yeah, that story resonates with me right now. I'm going to choose to say yes to that story. Or so many times I'll be like, 
That could be true. It might not be true. I don't need to know one way or the other in order to feel safe now. So that very masculine dominant left brain approach is reductionist. It's either this way or that way. That's how that left brain works. So we're constantly like right, wrong, yes, no. But the feminine side, the right side is full of an abundance of possibilities where if you really live in that space for a bit, you can see like, wow, in this same space, multiple seeming competing truths are true. <laughs> so I had one time, I was in a retreat in New Mexico. This very brilliant man from India was there and he showed us a five minute video, very, very compelling that the world was going to burn up from climate change and the last man alive would be in 10 years we're done for. Oh my gosh. Like this is happening faster than I thought the world's on fire. And then he's like, now I want you to watch this, a 10 minute video, extremely compelling case about how the world was getting colder and that we were going to die from the, an ice age that was starting to form. And so here are these two diametrically opposed, the world's burning up, the world's freezing and very compelling data, facts, all the things and having been a lawyer, I'm like, yeah, that joke about someone says, what's the answer? And the lawyer says, what would you like it to be? I mean, I can make a case on either side, you know, and had to do that in my training. So you can't really hang your hat on this is truth. It's really like, well, maybe, but it could equally be this. And I think that's when you start to allow for a diversity of perspectives. I don't need you to say to share my same beliefs in order for me to be friends with you, in order for me to let in, you have a totally different perspective. Now I'm like, tell me how you see the world. I want to see it through your eyes instead of no way, Navi, you don't see the world I do. So I'm just going to write you out of the picture. I'm not going to listen to a thing you have to say, and I'm going to discredit you and dislike you because you don't believe like I believe, because that's how I found to keep myself safe. But when I can feel safety in the paradox and in the uncertainty, that opens up a whole world. I'm thinking of commitment now and belief in commitment because I have a lot of beliefs and I do feel like I've made some choices and I'll make a stand because of my logic, my rationale. And yet when I look at what I'm committed to, not my intellectual commitment, for example, this interview, I do one of these a week for no reason other than I love to hear what people have to say. So I am committed to hearing your story, whatever it is. Do I believe in radio? Well, I like radio, so yeah, I must. But I, I do believe in my commitment to this process every week. So I wonder if we could find some good information by doing more of a commitment inventory, what are you mm. really committed to? I'm committed to ironing my shirts because I like to wear ironed shirts. A commitment inventory, what are you committed to? Not the big things, but the little things. I love that. I love that. And that's, you know, I talk about devotion a lot. I'm devoted to this notion that and I, I say it in that way of like it's a concept, it's an idea. I I can't necessarily prove it. I may end up being wrong, but I believe that regenerating leadership has the power to transform the world. If we transform the way we lead and the way that people spend so 
so much time and energy and the power that business wields, we can rapidly transform the world, right? So that's a belief that I'm holding. Now, I may believe this is the way we get there, but time and time again, as more data comes in, I can be like, oh, I thought it was this way. Maybe I need to take a slightly different approach. That's where the masculine and feminine weaving come in. If you're just in the feminine of like, I don't know anything's possible. I don't know anything. I, you know, it's hard to move through the world. It's hard to take action. It's hard to set a trajectory, right? I and mean, it's hard to have a solidity because that may be true. I might like vanilla. I might like chocolate. I don't know. For me, somewhere in the space of, I'm going to see what really resonates with me that just has a, a passion that lights up in me when I think about this. When I say, I believe regenerating leadership has the power to transform the world. Something moves in me. If I were like, I believe that if everyone were just millionaires, everybody'd be happy. I don't have that same juice, right? So if I pay attention to that, that's what my soul or whatever you want to call it wants me to experience. It doesn't mean it's right. It's the experience that I want to have in, in living through that story for a while. And as I gather a bunch of experiences, I may be complete with that experience and a new story may come in. And so I can let that new story in of maybe I'm not meant to be a lawyer anymore. Maybe I'm meant to be a retail store owner. Let me try that on for a while. But early in my legal career, I would not have let that story in. So there's a season and a reason for each of these beliefs. So like move with the belief that's moving you, but allow it to be a little bit malleable when it's time to shift it. And it's a bit ironic that we live in an environment that is so moving all the time, and yet we try to somehow control it with the hard, solid, specific beliefs. Look at the seasons. Every second is changing. Yeah. All you have to do is watch the ants or the spiders run around a bit. You know that it's just this constant movement, and we're on a 25,000 mile an hour planet that we're spinning all the time. So there's some hope, I think, in just allowing, okay, I'm all right in this moment mm -hmm. of, my, yeah. of, of my breath. I'm thinking of Robert Frostpoint. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. It's that industrial dichotomy. You either you're going to have ice or fire and you're going to just be dead either way. And yes. that's really not true. There's the fluidity of the sea, the fluidity of the birth, all of us being born every day as we go forth. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know where I found that piece of allowing that that sort of sensibility of and allowing change is once I could really deeply understand nature and the cycles and the seasons and the archetypal pattern of humanity, of nature, there is an incredibly brilliant order that many times looks like chaos. But if you take a large enough step back, you can be like, oh no, these galaxies and constellations actually work together in this incredible system. There is wisdom and nature in that. It may be beyond what that left brain mind can take in and control. But when we can let go of the wheel a bit and go, the world's got this. My multidimensional being has this, you know, it's, you know, I am a part of nature and nature just works. 
even if I don't know why this is happening, if I can remind myself that it's happening for me and not to me, then I can be like, well, let's get curious now. Instead of clinging onto the riverbank, it's going, nothing can change because we're in constantly this fast moving river. So how much more fun to be tubing down the river with maybe a beer in your hand than to be like clinging onto the riverbank and getting pummeled by the rushing tide. (laughs) Holly, that's a terrific image to close on because we have arrived at the top of our time together. Before we say goodbye, tell people how they can find out about your work, what you do, how they can reach you and what yeah. what else is out there for us? Yeah, thanks, Nave. So my passion project that's been my consum- consuming for the last three or four years as it's been birthed is Grail Leadership, which is this roundtable, co-creative, synergistic alignment between you know all these diverse genius within an organization and across organizations around a shared purpose. And I have a new website that's more focused on me as an individual and all the gifts that I have to bring called thrivingpurpose.com. So either way, if you're curious about this really sort of aspirational, where I believe the future of business is heading, grayleadership.earth. And if you're like, I don't know why I'm so unhappy and overwhelmed and burned out all the time, tell me there's got to be a better way, reach out to me through thrivingpurpose.com and we can have a conversation. So Holly, thank you so much for being on Twice 5 Miles Radio. Thank you, Nave. I really enjoyed it. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Holly McCann. You know, as Holly and I were talking about nature and the universe and how all these things fit together, I started thinking about Dylan Thomas's poem, Fern Hill, which reminds me of the memories I have of growing up seven or eight miles outside of Asheville on Brevard Road. Back when Brevard Road was country, now it's rather commercial. Interstate 26 crosses Brevard Road about a quarter of a mile from where my home was when I was a boy. Of course, memories are never accurate, and yet when I read Dylan Thomas's Fern Hill, I am reminded of how much joy I had running through the fields and under the apple trees and down by the barn where my grandfather's chickens lived. So Fern Hill is beautiful, and so I'd like to read that for you now as a way to close out the show. So here it is, Fern Hill by Dylan Thomas. Now as I was young and easy under the apple boughs about the lilting house and happy as the grass was green, the night above the dingled starry, time let me hail and climb golden in the heydays of his eyes, and on it among wagons I was prince of the apple towns, and once below a time I lordly had the trees and leaves trail with daisies and barley down the rivers of the windfall light. And as I was young and carefree, famous among the barns about the happy yard, and singing as the farm was home, in the sun that is young once only, time let me play and be golden in the mercy of his means. And green and golden I was huntsman and herdsman. The calves sang to my horn, the foxes on the hills barked clear and cold, and the Sabbath rang slowly in the pebbles of the holy streams. All the sun long it was running, it was lovely. The hayfields high as the house, the tunes from the chimneys, it was air and playing, lovely 
and watery and fire green as grass. And nightly under the simple stars, as I rode to sleep, the owls were bearing the farm away. All the moon long I heard, blessed among the stables, the night jars flying with the ricks and the horses flashing into the dark. And then to awake and the farm like a wanderer white with the dew come back, the cock on his shoulder. It was all shining. It was Adam and Maiden. The sky gathered again, and the sun grew round that very day. So it must have been, after the birth of the simple light in the first spinning place, the spell-bound horses walking warm out of the whinnying green stable onto the fields of praise and honored among foxes and pheasants by the gay house, under the new-made clouds, and happy as the heart was long in the sun that is born over and over. I ran my heedless ways. My wishes raced through house-high hay, and nothing I cared at my sky-blue trades that time allows in all his tuneful turning so few and such morning songs before the children green and golden follow him out of grace nothing i cared in the lamb white days that time would take me up to the swallow thronged loft by the shadow of my hand in the moon that is always rising nor that riding to sleep i should hear him fly with the high fields and wake to the farm forever fled from the childless land. Oh, as I was young and easy in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. And that was Fern Hill by Dylan Thomas. If you have a favorite poem, maybe one you've memorized, and you also like to write, you may have noticed how the favorite poem that you've memorized possibly can influence some of the material that you generate when you're writing. I have a lot of references in the work that I do. For example, in my book 100 Days, A Poetic Memoir After Cancer, Stare Into the Perfect refers to the country. It refers to the Taos area, not Western North Carolina. It's a very short poem that gives you a good example of country references and how I might have been influenced by Fern Hill. Stare into the perfect. The ease of Taos continues. I've gained much contentment from the magpies in the trees and much camaraderie with the regulars here at Wired Cafe who would believe me if I told them I was eating plums inside the bounty of my dreams. Dreams belong to this land. Far away up in the mountains, a young shepherd tends his flock. He stares into the perfect openness of passing hours. His voice is a deer coming out of a tree. Eyes see everything when they are allowed to look. So that's a nice poem to close on, give you a little bit of a sense of how Fernhill might transfer slightly into Stare into the Perfect. So on that note, thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. I appreciate it. We're always airing first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, 
Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. WalterParks.com for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM, and Robin Collier for managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. You can always reach me, Nave, at JamesNave.com. I would love to hear from you. I'd like to remind you that we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing chops, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to look. And if you would ever like to join the the free workshop that, that I do with my creative collaborator under the banner of Imaginative Storm, you can do that as well. Every Saturday, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, imaginativestorm.com for all that kind of stuff that will make your writing better. Once again, thank you ever so much for being part of Twice Five Miles Radio and tuning in. I do hope you come back sometime soon. Till then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.